Hola, amiga. I believe the only way to create a life of your dreams is by taking massive action that makes shit happen. Basically, amiga, handle your shit. Yes, I said that. Handle your shit. Stop playing small and start breaking down cultural limitations, gain back your feminine power, and become the unapologetic and unstoppable Latina you were destined to be. This show is meant to inspire, motivate, and awaken your soul's potential. You will learn from business professionals, successful entrepreneurs, and creatives that will teach you mental corrections, insider tips, success strategies, and of course, a dose of personal development. I am your host, Jackie Tapia, lawyer, transformational life coach, and entrepreneur. I am also a wife and mom to a little badass Latina. I'm obsessed with changing the Latina's mindset and breaking down cultural barriers so that you can live your best life and step into your true power and start living a life of abundance in all ways and always. Join me for inspiring conversations with thought leaders and learn how to handle your shit. ¿Estás lista? Vámonos. Hello, 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 amigas, and welcome to Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast. I am over the moon for this special guest. I've been praying to have her here. I've been seeing her so often in different events and Finally, finally, I get to interview her today. This is so exciting, amigas. This is really monumental for me. And so who am I speaking about? I'm speaking about Senator Susan Rubio. Yes, I'm so excited to have her here. So Senator Susan Rubio was elected to the California legislature in 2018, and she represents Senate District 22. Previously, she was a public school teacher for 17 years at Baldwin Park and Monroya School Districts and was elected official for 13 years in the city of Baldwin Park. The first Latina chair of the Senate Insurance Committee, Senator Rubio is on the Senate leadership team as assistant majority whip. She is a committee member of energy, utilities, communications, health, transportation, governmental organization, and joint committee on rules. She is co-chair of the Wildfire Working Group and is also a member of the Senate Housing Working Group. She is chair of the Senate Select Committee on Domestic Violence. In addition, she is a member of the Select Committees of the Asian Pacific Islander Affairs, Mental Health, and California, Armenia, and the Artsakh Mutual Trade Arts and Cultural Exchange. She is also a member of the Latino Le Legislative Caucus, Legislative Jewish Caucus, LA Caucus, and San Gabriel Valley Caucus, and Legislative Women's Caucus. Ooh. She was born in Juarez, Mexico. Senator Rubio is the proud daughter of a former Bracero worker and housekeeper. She attended East LA College and earned a master's degree in education from Azusa Pacific University. She now lives in Baldwin Park, California. 
Let me tell you a little bit about Senate District 22. It comprises of the cities of Alhambra, Arcadia, Azusa, Baldwin Park, Covina, El Mani, Industry, Irwindale, La Puente, Monterey Park, San Gabriel, Rosemead, South El Mani, Temple City, and West Covina, as well as the unincorporated communities of Avocado Heights, Charter Oak, Citrus, East Pasadena, East San Gabriel, Mayflower Village, North El Monte, South Monrovia Island, South San Gabriel, South San Jose Hills, Belinda, Vicente, and West Puente Valley. Wow. She represents so many people. She represents an, a community that is very diverse. And I'm just excited that she decided to be here with us at Amiga Handership Podcast. Porque amigas, as you know, this is a super treat for me and it will be a treat for you. So without further ado, this is Senator Susan Rubio. Hello, 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 amigas, and welcome to Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast. I am so excited to have this beautiful soul and just a trailblazer like no other that I've had here on this podcast. So I am just so honored that we get to have this beautiful conversation with Senator Susan Rubio. So I am so excited to have you here, Senator. I've been at so many events that you've been, and I'm like, I want to have her on my podcast. I want to have her on my podcast. And finally, I'm like so excited that you're here. So welcome, welcome, Senator Susan Rubio. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm always, you know, happy to see you at events, but honored to be here, especially, you know, to highlight Latina issues. So I'm glad to be here. And speaking of that, you have done a lot for the community as a Latina trailblazer, and I'm excited to have you here and discuss more about that. But I know the road was not all easy, as people may think it is. I know as a senator, you're going through you're weaving through people, you're talking to so many individuals with different personalities. And I could just imagine how the work behind that and the the amount of strategy that you need to do and, and the amount of conversations that you're having. And so I know that you come from the educational background. And I know that that has been really important for you as being a senator for the District 22. And so I wanted you to touch upon that, your experience as an educator and how that has informed you as a senator in legislating. Thank you for the question. And I think that's probably one of the most important questions I'm going to answer today. You know, I always want to start by thanking all the teachers out there. I mean, the work is not easy and not to diminish anybody else's job, but when you're dealing with little precious lives and it's up to you to ensure that these little souls, that I, they achieve their goals, it, it's, a, it's a big responsibility. However, it is beautiful in that you really are at the front seat. You're, you're seeing every social, emotional, economic issue that our families are facing. So when you ask, like, how does that inform me as a legislator? I mean, that was critical. In fact, I started public service and being an elected official because my service began in the classroom. And what I mean by that is 
I mean, you have students coming to you saying, Ms. Rubio, I'm hungry. I haven't had anything to eat since yesterday. Or, Ms. Rubio, we've been sleeping in the cars. Uh, Mommy doesn't want me to tell you, but we don't have any food or I don't have a place to do my homework. And, And so you start getting a sense of what the needs are in the community. In fact, I always made it a point to have snacks in my drawers. I was just automatic because when kids came in the morning, they would just, you can just see it, number one, but number two, they would come to you and say, my tummy hurts. I knew what that meant. I'm hungry. And so I, you know, I always had something in case, you know, those kids came in without having time to eat. I would provide snacks and give them a little bit of opportunity to to snack on it. The other thing is, as most families People are embarrassed to really share their circumstance. It's not something that you want to tell your um, son's teacher, right? We got thrown out of the apartment. We don't have food. And so as an educator, you start paying attention to either patterns or clothing or even just the distress on a child's face changes in behavior, changes in their grades. And you start putting it together, almost like solving a puzzle. Once you do, and you start talking to the parents and students, you find that they're, they want help. They just are afraid to come out. So that's how I started trying to put resources together for students, either connect them with shelters or connect them with clothing, but on a teacher's salary. And it was very difficult for me to pay out of pocket. And I did a lot. And I want to thank teachers because I'm sure there's a lot of teachers that can relate to this. So I started wanting to be a local council member or start locally as an elected leader to see if I can leverage some of the resources around us. And so that that was the beginning of my journey. It was all because I was in the front seat of a car watching all the families behind me struggle and suffer. And it was a, you know up to me to figure out how do I make it better for them? So Again, you're in the front row of seeing every emotional situation, their economic, either highs and lows. And so it really does tug at your heartstrings because you want to save the world. So what I did, and I'm sure others do it, you try to figure out one thing at a time. And so that was the beginning of my journey. Wow. Incredible. I applaud you for that because as a mom, as you're saying, you know, kid being hungry, I'm like, that breaks my heart. If you don't have nutrition, how are you going to focus in school? Right? And it's so important. The growth of a child, the, you know, the academic prosperity of a child. And I tell people, let's pay attention when there's a child and things like, you know, my tummy hurts. That's to me, that was almost saying I'm hungry. They go hand in hand. So let's let's be vigilant and, and pay attention to those around us. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I applaud you for taking the leadership to start the trajectory of getting into politics. And wow, how did that, I mean, I know that you wanted to be in the front line, but I'm sure, was it easy that transition over? Because I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, ooh, if I would do that as a lawyer, how would that work? You know, it's never easy. And I think that we, and I'm just going to speak for myself right now, we are our worst enemies. It almost feels like, we need a little encouragement. It almost feels like we're groomed to think that in particular, my case, you grew up around a lot of uh, men or, you know, your surrounding, the men always take the lead. And so even as female Latinas, you're sort of groomed to think that it's not a woman's place, correct? And so 
you kind of believe it a little and then you start trying to break away from from that notion that you can't do it. And and so so first is breaking away from your own barrier. You put barriers for yourself. Once you break down those walls and you start succeeding at, you know, for me as a teacher, others as lawyers, whatever the case may be, once you prove to yourself that you took that step and you got somewhere, then then you start thinking, what else can I do? You start believing in yourself and your ability to make a difference in a, in a much broader way. And so it was scary, but I knew that the need was great. And if I wasn't going to do it, I was afraid that I just couldn't stand to see that that our kids were going hungry. That was just always something in my mind. And I was an immigrant uh, a child that came from another country with parents that didn't speak English. So so I saw myself very much in the families that I serviced. So I had to do it. Scared or not, I had to do it. So it was scary, a lot of work, but I didn't start at the top. So that's the, the misconception as well. Yeah. If people always ask, what would you advise young ladies, if they want to be you, if they want to follow in your footsteps. This is to me vital. I always say it sounds easy once you see women like myself in in Senate or other leadership roles, but it's not easy. So I always say start small. So I didn't start as as a senator. In fact, I started as a city clerk. I didn't really know a lot about politics and how government Worked. So I started as a, an elected city clerk. So I run for city clerk first. And a city clerk's job is to monitor elections, make sure that you're the one that vets the candidates as they want to run. So you get to learn everything a candidate needs to turn in, what the requirements are. And then step two, as a, an elected city clerk, another very vital and important job that helped me you know, get to the next level was you're required to attend every council meeting and take notes. Your primary job is to ensure that the minutes of every meeting is recorded. So you don't have a voice. You don't get to talk about issues. You sit there quietly. And I call it my college years because I spent four years silently sitting and taking notes and and again, making sure that the minutes were up. But the, the good news is you get to see every community member come in, complain about issues, tell the council what they need, what they don't need. I even learned how the council members interact with each other, what language they use, what was successful, what was not. So I I look at it as my training ground. And that was four vital years that helped me, prepared me for the next step. Then I ran for city council. So that is the advice. Start small, learn the craft, and then, you know, you'll be a lot more successful with a lot less stress, I would think, because you you know the issues. Yes, absolutely. And I truly believe you first, you know, you start from the bottom and then you work your way up. I feel like that in all kinds of jobs, right? And as a lawyer, you first have to clerk, get an internship. And then once you pass the bar, you start practicing law. And even then you still junior associate, you still have to go through the ranks and very scary. But, you know, I feel like you having the practice those four years of seeing people's interactions, how they handle situations because they're different voices. And so now that you are a senator, like how do you handle those voices from individuals that are not, I mean, pretty much not agreeing with what you're saying? Like, what do you do? How how do you set yourself up for, for either trying to get them to get to your side, convincing them, or 
working a situation because there's always gridlock, right? There's always this clash. What do you do? What, what process do you use in order to communicate your position and effectively advocate the the rights of your constituents? Yeah, no, absolutely. I I told several uh, individuals, you know, not so long ago that it's not an easy job. And most people, uh, and I want to make it very clear, it's not an easy job and it sounds fancy and it comes with a lot of prestige, but it's not an easy job. So how do I get people to come to the table? It's a lot of work. I do a lot of research. I want to be prepared. And often I get attacked for some votes that I take. But let's start with the fact that no elected official will ever please every single constituent. That's impossible. We we all take care of communities that are very diverse, uh, not only, uh, you know, in terms of male, female, but also politically. There's so many differences. So, you know, if we start with the premise of, OK, I'm not going to please everyone. That's where mm-hmm. my head started. Then the second thing that I told myself is they're going to come at me. Uh, they're going to disagree. But the one thing that I want to be able to do is justify my position. Mm-hmm. So when I get attacked about a vote that I took or didn't take, I could always explain to people why I took that position. And I, you know, and people come at me uh, and then once I talk to them and I give them my perspective and mostly because I come from lived experience, I lived a lot of the issues that our families are are dealing with. Once I explain to them where I come from, why I take that position and why I understand, you know, how it's either going to hurt or harm someone, then they're okay. And then, you know, we all tend to to say this often, you know, it's okay to, to disagree as long as, you know, we respect each other. And so there's plenty of people that love my work, that that are really proud of my work. And there's those, again, they're politically different that may not be on board, but I, I'm still collaborative. We still have conversations and I still allow them to give me the perspective because we learn and we grow by bringing other perspectives to the table. So I'm clear that I, I don't know it all. And it's important that you value everyone's perspective. So so that's how I bring people to the table. Oh, well, thank you for that. Some individuals have said to me, Jackie, you should become a politician. You should do this and this and that. I said, ah, no, 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 thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to handle that. But your answer to this question makes a lot of sense. You're already, you're already saying, listen, I'm not going to please everybody, period, end of story, because it's true. There's so many thoughts, so many ideologies that you got to, you know, you honor yourself first, right? In terms of like, okay, these are the non-negotiables. I, kids, that's the number one, their safety, their health. That is your forefront vision for, for your constituents and what you have for them to add for your advocate advocacy. Me, if I were to be a politician, I don't know. <laughs> Too, and I, I don't know if I have that strength like you do. Yeah. But one, one thing that I do have that is in common with what you actually do um, support is uh, victims of domestic violence. I worked in legal aid many years ago. I feel like it's a lifetime ago as a domestic violence uh, attorney. The issues confronting women, particularly women, because I mean, let's face it, that's usually that's the case. What do you believe has really stood out in your life where, wow, this case of domestic violence is something that most people should know, and I'm going to bring it forth in legislation? Again, lived experience. But one of the things that I did when I got to the legislature was 
interview a lot of women. And, you know, going back to the previous question, when people come at you and perhaps they're not on board, as long as you have the data in front of you, I'm very data driven and the issue and you know it well, then then again, you can bring people along. My first year, I wanted to not just use my personal experience and how I view the world, but I wanted to give others the opportunity to tell me how they see the world. And so I engaged in interviewing a lot of women. In fact, so many of them reached out to me and men. I'm sorry, I should always point out that the number of men is also growing in terms of domestic violence. So they were reaching out through uh, social media, my emails, and uh, most of them, you know, wanted to tell their stories because they felt that, yeah, I gave them courage to speak up or, or, or say something. So I engage in trying to gather information, the differences in terms of, you know, how incidents happen. And one incident that stood out, which was the catalyst for my my first bill that I I'm really proud of is a bill that I worked with an actress and I'm going to give her credit because she actually had a personal experience that she was navigating and she was trying to change the law in California and across the United States. And that was to change the statute of limitations in California. Evan Rachel Wood was a domestic violence victim and she shared that she had been in a toxic relationship where the assault was not what she was dealing with. It was the mental, psychological trauma. In fact, she shared that she was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and that she, when she was ready to do something about it, the statute of limitation had run out. And mm-hmm. so her and I, along with a coalition called I'm, I'm Not Okay, she brought this idea to me and we worked diligently on on trying to change the laws in California. The law had not been touched in 30 years. So victims had at the time three years to recognize they're in a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship. Step one, step two, have the courage to get out of a relationship. And then step three, have the time to heal and and, and get help and, you know, uh, surround yourself with the support system you need to then step forward come forward and, and, you know, bring a perpetrator or try and get justice for whatever happened to you. But we know three years is not enough. So we uh, set out to change the law and uh, we were successful in going from three to five years. So that was very significant. Uh, What came out of that piece, I thought it was going to be really simple. And what I mean by that, I always think like everyone can agree, right? Domestic violence victims need more time. Like who would say no to this? Interesting enough, we ran into a lot of opposition. The bill was a lot broader and we ended up having to change course. So for example, we wanted to change it to 15 years because the average time it takes a victim based on data and information out there is anywhere from eight to 10 years that the victims are carrying the trauma and they're still very much afraid. They don't have to be in the relationship. They're still afraid. They're afraid Uh, For their children, if their children involved, there's all these considerations. Some perpetrators turn to threatening your family. And so every individual has a different circumstance. So I wanted to highlight that because when we as Californians are telling victims, you have to come out in three years, who are we to dictate when they feel safe, when they feel ready? And I have several cases that I worked on moving forward, you know, fast forward four years 
I passed a bill called Peaky's Law based on a five-year-old little boy whose father murdered him because the mother decided to separate and there was history of abuse. And in order to uh, basically get back at her and harm her, the best way he found was to kill the five-year uh, little boy. His name's Peaky. And we again, we passed Peaky's Law. And I say that because I tell people when they say, well, if abuse is happening, why don't they say something? Why don't they walk away? It's not that simple. And I want to bring Anna Esteves, who's the mother of Peaky, to highlight the fact that she did what we as society tell a victim to do. Walk away. Why don't you just leave? Well, she left. And because of that, her little boy is no longer with us. And I have 15 other stories to tell you because I, I, I do work with a lot of mothers of murdered children, hearing their heartbreaking stories. I mean, one thing I'm very clear on, it is every circumstance is different the safety of the family, the child, and even neighbors and extended family is very different. So we cannot dictate when a victim should leave. It should be up to the victim. And the only thing we can do is allow enough time for them to decide how they're going to do it. And so I'm happy to report that that bill was went from 15 years to five years in 2019. And I was extremely happy because we moved the needle. This year, I have a bill currently right now and a committee that I will attempt to bring it back to 15 years again. And I passed it through the Senate unanimously. And so now I'm waiting for the assembly. It's still going through the process. And so we'll see what happens. But uh, we cannot judge based on what we think is the circumstance. It's not up to us to decide. Number two, uh, what came out of that original bill we extended the statute of limitations. We wanted to change the definition of domestic violence to include coercive control. And going back to the author of the bill who brought the idea to me, it wasn't the assault. Uh, it wasn't what was harming her. It was that constant psychological torture. And by way of example, I won't speak about her. I'm going to speak about the collective stories that I've gathered. And most Victims will tell you they rather uh, maybe get hit because, you know, a bruise will disappear in a couple of days. But it's when they remove all aspects of your liberty. They don't allow you to hang out with friends, see your family. They almost entrap you in a situation where you can't get out. They will monitor their phones, their social media. They have to ask permission to even wear makeup. And so if you start seeing this little pattern of coercion, it really erodes that liberty that we're so used to that we take for granted, right? If I want to call my mother, I should be able to call my mother. But these victims are threatened. They're kept away from their families. And perpetrators will do that because it really diminishes a victim's self-esteem. And so by the time it's been happening a few months, maybe years, it makes it almost impossible for victims to leave. They're so destroyed in the inside. They feel weak. They don't feel worthy. Of course, uh, abusers uh, tend to go out of their way to make them feel either meaningless, ugly, old, whatever the case may be. And so I'm going to bring it back to the extension of the uh, statute of limitation is that do not ever say, why didn't she leave or why didn't he leave? We don't know what that looks like unless you're in that situation. And for this victim, uh, several victims that I've spoken to, it just became a way of life and they were just in survival mode. It wasn't about assault anymore. It was they were so brainwashed and traumatized that 
it was almost they were like children having to ask permission to even go to the restroom. So I want everyone to think about that. And we need to be more sensitive to victims of domestic violence. We need to be less judgmental. And if we hear stories of victims coming forward, I really never want to hear is it's not true. Why was she in that relationship five years, three years? Why didn't they leave? You know, I hear it all the time uh, now, you know, either by way of, you know, talking to all these victims, that's the one thing they struggle with. They are not believed. So let's start believing victims, giving them the benefit of the doubt and let's support them and let's just be vigilant and let's just be there to support them when they need the help. Oh my God. Yes, 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 yes. On everything that you're saying, having gone to court and received DDPA orders, domestic violence protective orders, it was like pulling teeth sometimes from the judges. Well, but why didn't she leave earlier? And, and all these things, and you're bringing the testimony of different types, different people who was, who were witnessing what was going on, even though they were not inside the house, but they witnessed like after conversations. To this day, I feel like it's so crazy that it's still going on, that people don't understand this area, that it's not easy for a victim to, first of all, speak of, especially when you're undocumented or don't have any status here or any work history in your life. There's so many factors why a woman, a victim or a man victim stays in a relationship. And so I'm grateful that you're saying that this part that we as a community, as a society, get to be more sensitive and be more supportive in that in that yeah. regard. It's really tough. It's really tough for them. It's really tough yes. for them. And I don't want to forget to share another bill, which I think it's going to be really important for, for people listening. And during the pandemic, one of the things that we found is access to the court system was almost impossible just based on the lockdowns. And so I passed a bill for various reasons. Yes, that was one aspect of it. Uh, we were on lockdown and victims had no way of, of getting a protective order or getting help. The other aspect was that most uh, victims will recant their story, will say it didn't happen because of fear of going to court, filing. Uh, it, there's just so many fears. So I passed a bill that allows victims of domestic violence to file a protective order uh, remotely. They can go to an advocate and be able to file it without having to be in court in person. And I think that was critical because taking that first step, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of maybe someone that doesn't have uh, transportation, right? Taking that first step to get on a bus, maybe uh, public transportation to to go to court and that with that fear of being discovered. And I mean, there's a million considerations. So I thought, the easiest way for someone to feel safe is to be able to do it remotely without, you know, fear. And if they don't have the resources to get themselves to a court or get help, this is an easy way to try and get that protection. So I was very proud of that, too. And a lot of uh, victims have shared that it's it's helped and they're very thankful. So that's something that those listeners out there can hear just consider if you're in a situation that's da dangerous to go to an advocate and see if you can file something online. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. It, I feel that ever since this pandemic, it really completely changed the trajectory of the court system. Now, yes. I, I feel that it's a little bit more friendlier, if you will, because now you can do these things remotely <laughs> without having yes. to step out or having the abuser even know that you're doing this. 
And an added piece, because you talked about your service and how you saw the judges a little hesitant. Um, Well, I wanted to share that Peaky's Law, uh, what it really intended to do, which was the heart of the bill, was educating judges about child custody cases and domestic violence cases. Because in Peaky's case, uh, the judge that ruled that the father should have custody with history of abuse and the mother tried to get him back really came from the corporate world. So I, I believe she shared that he had been in corporate law for years and he had just been transferred to family law. And so what that means is we can't assume that any that everyone grew up in a household where they probably saw you know, violence, you know, how would they recognize the signs, right? And so educating them on cases and perhaps reviewing previous cases that they've seen would probably give them a little bit more information of of the nuance of maybe patterns of abuse, what happens in court. And so Anna Steves has been fighting this good fight for a long time. And finally, this year, I was able to to help pass it with her and, and a coalition of mothers who lost their children. And Peaky's Law is really going to help in that way. It's going to ensure that there's education that judges have to at least understand domestic violence and child custody cases because a life is too precious not to to understand how important it is to really listen and and understand how, like in this case, right, a, a life can be lost in one day. And so, you know, when Anna was trying to fight for her little boy, it was too late. He had already murdered her little boy. He disappeared for about nine months. And she says, you know, I couldn't save my child. Let's figure out how to save others. And so I'm just really blessed to be part of this journey and be able to help all the mothers across the United States that I've met with. And we're trying to figure out how to do it across our nation. There's been laws in other states, but it's still really difficult. Uh, judges push back on it, the Judicial Council. And, and and so little by little, we're, we're taking baby steps to make sure that the court system works better for our victims and those fighting for, for their children's safety. Yes, absolutely. I think it, it's... It's like stepping stones, brick, by brick, by brick, by brick. You're starting this with the Peaky Law and well, many, many courts in across the nation look to California as an influence. So I'm sure that this is going to resonate for other states to come. I am so grateful for this, for you, for you being the leader, Latina, trailblazing this cause because it is so important that people need to find out more information about domestic violence and about the fact that it's so important to have a judge in court that knows that can address these issues and stop this. Yeah. I just uh, realized that we were talking about coercive control, which is what happens to victims that are entrapped. And so I, I wanted to, you know, share a bill that I did in that regard because victims need to know what's available. And so I passed a bill after extending the statute of limitations. We now passed a bill that redefined domestic violence. So for those victims out there that think, well, I don't have pictures of the bruises or I can't prove this and that. They need to know that now I've changed the law in California. Now victims can use coercive control as supporting evidence in court. So if they are taking your finances away, basic necessities, finances, food, and not letting you out of the house, not letting you go to school, all those little basic things that, that tear at your, again, at your liberties, you can use that as supporting evidence. Now it wasn't accepted prior. And now uh, with my SB 1141, I believe is the one that now allows 
victim. So if you have a threatening messages or evidence that they're doing all these things, surveilling you, monitoring you, watching you, all that is now considered uh, domestic violence in California. So know that you can use that as supporting evidence in court. Absolutely. And also use that if you are an immigrant and wanting to process immigration papers here in this country. There's VAWA, there's U visa, there's T T visas. I have to plug it in, girl, because it's important. An immigration attorney, I'm like, oh, yes, and more and more. (laughs) Yeah, it's important because if nothing else, I hope that you and I today take this issue very seriously in, in terms of educating the public. There's always Someone, when I I do a lot of talks and I'm a keynote speaker to a lot of events as it pertains to domestic violence. And I always end by saying, I'm here to support you. If there's anyone that wants to talk to me, go reach out to me privately. And it never fails the number of calls that I get trying to say, you know, thank you. You empowered me. This is happening. Last time I went to a a party, no less. And someone pulled me aside and said, because of you, I have the courage to leave. And, And so I know that it's the most difficult thing to share with family, friends, and the public. So if we can at least encourage someone to, to at least take that step, then, you know, then we've done our job here today. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think it is my belief that we get to empower one another through advocacy and through knowledge, education. These kind of talks are super important so that we get empowered and know like, okay, these are the resources that are available to me. These are the people that I can talk to because, yes, it, it gets to be a very lonely place for victims of domestic violence and and even Im- just generally immigrants as well. That's the population that I dealt with, mostly immigrants, not wanting to talk, not wanting to say for fear of losing status or losing the ability to make money here in the state of California or here in the United States. And and I always come back to immigration because yes. I'm like, I'm like, ah, so much going on with the news and the politics and whatnot. And I know this is your your state senator, but you have a big influence in the comprehensive immigration reform. Do you see something positive coming to light? I want to be honest about the issue itself. I mean, and, and I say this because the gridlock right now in Washington. It is worse than it's ever been. So I don't want to diminish the work of others that came before us, right? They've been working on this issue for years and still not able to move the needle, correct? And so it is something that is absolutely important because I believe it's not just about immigration. It's about all of our health. You know, when we see what's happening on the border or some of these families are like in shelters. We just heard, I think it was New York where a a child died. I think it was New York where they were in a shelter and a little boy died. I mean, this is a health crisis. And, And so as human beings, it's not about the United States, Mexico, countries. If we are human, we want families to to be healthy. We want families to thrive. We want families to have, you know, the best that they can offer their their families. And so when I think of uh, immigration reform, it is a big battle. I hope you ask me, do I see it in the future? I absolutely do. We have to believe we can change the laws and make it safe for immigrants. But I am a realist and I know that it's been a very difficult thing for uh, any legislator to do. And there's been, you know, little tries here and there. And at one point, as Democrats, we had the majority and and we weren't able to 
really move the needle. And now that it's so fractured in terms of the politics and what's going on, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of collaboration (laughs) and a lot of will to want to bring everyone to the table because I think that we all win. And I'll just share about California. The misconception is that Democrats want it, Republicans don't want it. In California, we have the largest agriculture community. We feed the world in the Central Valley as it pertains to, you know, the food and, and, and what we grow in the state. We are the leading state. What do we need in order to, to continue to be the leading state? We need workforce. And some of the Republican farmer owners in the Central Valley have told me very honestly that they want comprehensive immigration reform because they have uh, families or workers that have been with them for years. And every time there's a threat of them being deported, what happens? They stop coming to work. And what happens to the productivity? It drops off. And then so there's a cycle that that sort of, uh, you know, is in place where we don't get the food that we need in our stores, in our tables. And so they want it because that means that they have a consistent workforce that they can rely on that will continue to help them with their productivity. So at least in California, I see the appetite. I know around the world, uh, the narrative is in around our nation, the narrative is other, but let's hope that we can all get on the same page. I want to believe and I want to see it. I do too. I do too. (laughs) Yes. From your words to God's ears, I say. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. And I know there's so many topics that we can talk about, but I know your time is very limited. But before I have you leave, I love if you can share one or two tips on how an amiga can handle her shit. (laughs) Okay, you know that I have a really hard time saying those words. I do because, but I know you, you, um, someone, even my staffer says, do you want to do this podcast? They couldn't even say the word because as a teacher, I struggle saying certain words publicly, but I will say this. This is how, you know, Latinas, amigas can handle it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, we are multitaskers by nature, right? And, And I would just say, this is how I started, you know, 35 bills, 25 bills, and we want to take on the world. And so the way we are effective is we can't overextend ourselves. We want to do it all and we should be able to do it all. But if we want to do quality work, then we have to really narrow down the scope of what we want to do. So we do it well. And in the process, figure out how to take care of ourselves, because it almost feels again by nature, sorry to my male allies, by nature, women take care of others and we forget to take care of ourselves. I'm guilty. I'm probably the worst offender, but I think that it's key for us to understand that we can't do it all at once. We could do it in increments, but we need to really focus on on smaller bites, if you will. So that would be my advice. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm one of those people. I'm a visionary. So I'm like, oh, we could do this, 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 and that. And then like, okay, Jackie, just calm down and just narrow it down. (laughs) It's like, you'll be thankful. You'll be thankful for for narrowing it down and just taking it a bit by bit because it's important. If it's important for you, going slower sometimes is better. Yes. Just taking it easy. Yes. Well, I am so grateful. Thank you so much, Senator. I am so honored that you're here. And and I know that those that hear this podcast will be super inspired by your words. And I know that now they have someone that they can contact 
at your office if they're, they're in need of domestic violence work or whether health meal needs, even if they're not a constituent in your in your yes. district. Right. Oh, I just met with someone from Spain. That is how broad the issue is. And we're all here to support each other. So I will find you the right connection and the right resources. Absolutely. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like for us to um, know about what's going on that we haven't spoken about? Like I said, I work really, really hard to make sure that that we represent and just seeing more women, Latinas at the table is critically important. I didn't see any role models growing up that looked like me. And so when you go to the polls, this is my, my message all the time, consider those issues. We need more Latina women at the table. And when you go to those polls, I want you to consider that, you know, that we haven't had women at the table for too many years. And so always look at that, consider who you're you're selecting, because you're going to set the tone for the next generation of little girls who are going to be watching us and they need to see more women. They need to see more leaders that reflect the diversity of the state and our country. So thank you so much. Thank you. Truly honored. And I can't wait to see you again. And I know that you're campaigning right now again, right? So yes. I'm excited for all the things and this podcast will be out soon in the new year. So Thank I don't you. know if I'm allowed to say it, but I am running for Congress. And, yes, absolutely. Uh, um, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I'm running for Congress at Congressional District 31. My Congresswoman, Grace Napolitano, just announced retirement. I have represented 13 of the 15 cities in this district. And so it's a natural fit. It's a community that I love, that I understand, that I can relate to. So hopefully in those listening, go out to vote and make sure that you really need to select people that represent your community and, and the needs and that have lived experience. You know, as an immigrant, formerly undocumented myself, it is incumbent upon me to ensure that I'm advocating for you. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for being here. I'm Mika Handle Your Shit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast. If anything resonates with you today, please share it with your friends and subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to share it on Instagram, Facebook, and other social media platforms. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at www.amigahandleyourshit.com. Thank you so much for listening. Gracias y hasta la próxima.